0: welcome to caregiving club on air this podcast is dedicated to the millions of family caregivers who want wellness tips and self-care solutions who seek expert advice and who want news about healthy aging and how to create well home design in our forever homes i'm sherry snelling a corporate gerontologist author and educator a tv interviewer host and news commentator I'm joining you from Southern California where our interviews and news take us all across the country to explore the many ways to help you on your caregiving journey and to lift you up here at Caregiving Club On Air. Welcome everybody to Caregiving Club On Air. This is our episode on caregiver love stories for Valentine's Day when this episode launches, but also we're focusing on February 18th, which is National Caregiver Day. So in our episode today, we have a really exciting guest, Dr. Jessica Zitter, who is a physician in hospice care as well as critical care, but she's also a documentary filmmaker. And she's gonna talk to us about her latest documentary called Caregiver, A Love Story, which talks about the challenges and the love that those of us who have a spouse or a partner that we're caring for, particularly at end of life, it's a really poignant film. And Dr. Zitter is going to tell us a little bit more about that and what she learned about family caregiving from a physician's perspective. And then, of course, we have our caregiver wellness news for you, where we're going to focus on resources and different things out there that can help those of you who are caring for your spouse or your partner. And our Well Home Design News is going to focus on those sanctuary spaces in our home. How do we find little places where we can escape that give us a little bit of that balance back, that self-care that we all need while we're caregiving? And then finally, of course, we end with our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. And this one is focusing on pink clouds, rose-colored glasses, and silver linings in caregiving. All that are designed to help us, again, have more of that balance in our emotional health And practice that self care, which we know is so important. So, with that, let's go to our caregiver wellness news. So, for our caregiver wellness news for this episode, as you know, February is Heart Health Month. We also reference that we're launching this episode on Valentine's Day. And as well, February 18th, of course, is National Caregiver Day. And what that all means is that as caregivers, of course, we know it's really important to care for ourselves. I think as much as we're caring for other loved ones, it's really tough to do much easier said, of course, than done. But um, some things that I think are really important and particularly for those listeners who may be caring for a spouse or a partner, there's a lot of statistics out there that are very specific. Now we have about 5.7 million caregivers in the U S who are caring for a spouse or partner. That's out of the 50 million overall caregivers that we have in total across the U.S. So it's a smaller percentage. But one of the things that we know is that there are certain studies and surveys that have been done over the years that have shown that spousal caregivers often are doing a lot more of the hands-on care for their loved ones. So this is both not just the emotional toll of caregiving, but also those physical activities. So, you know, whether it's helping with bandaging wounds and wound care or helping with medications, make sure your loved one's taking the right medications or even helping them with certain medication, even, you know, activities of daily living. So things like dressing and feeding and, you know, helping them in the bathroom and all the things that we think about. This is something that a lot of our spousal caregivers are doing themselves rather than getting the professional help, you know, an outside home health agency or a caregiver in the house that might be able to help them out. And we see a lot more of that, of course, when we're caring for a parent or a grandparent or another loved one. But when it, when it comes to our spouse, I think it goes back to, you know, those vows that, that people take when they get married, you know, in sickness and in health. And we feel this kind of challenge, obligation, honor to take care of our loved ones ourselves but there's certain ramifications to that. And it certainly has a lot to do with healthcare. So I wanted to read to you a few things that I actually researched and wrote about in my book called the cast of caregivers. And I have a whole chapter of course on spousal caregiving, but you know, some things that I think are really interesting are the toll that spousal caregiving takes. So in 2015, there was a survey done. And what it showed is that at that time, 45% 45% of spousal partner caregivers said their health was excellent or pretty good. And just five years later, when this same survey was taken in 2020, it had dropped from 45% saying their health was good to now only 32% saying their health was good. So I think what this is showing us is there's a lot more strain. You know, we know that there's a lot more care that's being delivered at home. And what that means is with less of our loved ones going into retirement communities or assisted living or even nursing homes, that means a lot of the care is falling on, of course, our family caregiver's shoulders and particularly for our spousal caregivers. Now, some of the other research that I did for my book, there was one study that was done that talked about the strain of caregiving. And so for those caregivers of a spouse who had had a stroke, who said, yes, I feel a higher strain a little bit more stress in my caregiving role 23% of those caregivers were more likely to have a stroke themselves compared to other caregivers who said no i'm not really feeling as much strain so again the intensity of the caregiving the type of caregiving that you're delivering particularly as i mentioned if it's things that are physically you know taxing or medication adherence which you know can become really complicated those kinds of strains are actually putting our family caregivers and our spousal caregivers in particular at more health risk. Now, one other study I just want to cite for you, and that's in Alzheimer's. All of you who listen to me know that I do a lot of work in the Alzheimer's and dementia community. And there was a study that came out a few years ago about Alzheimer's caregiving. And it talked about how the caregiving journey, first of all, for Alzheimer's is twice as long as other caregivers. So the average time that most caregivers are caring for a loved one is about four and a half years. But for Alzheimer's and dementia caregivers, it's nine years on average. It could certainly be a lot longer than that, depending on when your loved one was diagnosed. But the study that I'm referencing talked about loneliness, and there was a certain level of isolation and and loneliness, which is different from isolation. That's just withdrawing from kind of social activity. Loneliness is where you really truly feel all alone, despite the fact that you might have other family or friends or, you know, be at work or whatever. So loneliness is a huge health factor. As we know, we've talked about this before on this podcast, but this particular study said that those caregivers of people with Alzheimer's who felt a significant degree of loneliness over that period of you know a few years, actually had a forty percent higher risk for developing Alzheimer's themselves. So again, I think this is all to just reinforce the message that we know that many of you know, but again, it's hard to remember when we're caught up in you know the the flurry and the hustle and bustle of caregiving. Is that we do have to take care of ourselves. We see so many family caregivers become more ill than the person they're caring for. And because our spousal and partner caregivers, again, are doing a little bit more of that higher intensity caregiving, then that puts our own health at a, at a lot more risk. So, just some resources I wanted to share with you. First of all, there's a really wonderful association that's called the Well Spouse Association. Now, this is specifically for the spouse or partner who, of course, is, is healthier who is caring for a loved one but it's a it's a really great resource there's a lot of support groups that they do that are both in person now that we're kind of you know getting back to doing in person activity but they also do a lot of online support groups there's a lot of mentoring within the group so that caregivers who have been through this can guide and help newer members to really understand what are the challenges ahead there's a lot of really great resources so well spouse Association, which is wellspouse.org. We're going to have a link to that on our episode guide page. And then also, there's something called Caregivers Connect. This is a Facebook page, again, for family caregivers, where this is more just kind of sharing experiences and sharing things that are going on. But a lot of people use social media now for more of these kind of informal support groups. So you can check out that Caregivers Connect page. We have a link to the page on our episode guide page. And then, you know, think about the disease or the diagnosis that your loved one has. So again, if you have a loved one with dementia or Alzheimer's, you're going to want to look up the Alzheimer's Association or local dementia groups in your community or either online, because they're going to know, more about this particular disease and every caregiving journey is unique. And you, it's really important when you go to get support that you're in a group where they understand what's going on. Same thing. If it's, if it's somebody with cancer or ALS or Parkinson's or multiple sclerosis, you really want to feel that support from the people who know exactly what you're going through. So that's really important. The other thing that I've seen is that for a lot of our wives and moms who are caregiving for a loved one who has been a a military veteran. And depending on what perhaps is their particular issue, whether it's a disability or whether it's something like post-traumatic stress disorder, it's really important to find those military and veteran support groups. Because again, the culture of being a military wife or uh, a military partner is really different from a lot of the other support groups so it's it's great to really find a group that can help give you a little bit of that outlet and allow you to talk to others and get really great insights as to how to feel more supported in your role. I think the other thing too, that's important is there, um, I referenced this in my book, but there's a book called the caregiving wife handbook. It was written by Dr. Diane Denholm a few years ago, but she really talks about not becoming almost like a nanny when you're caring for, you know, a husband or a partner or whatever, you don't want to become this enabler that makes your loved one feel more vulnerable to what they're facing with their disease or disability or their diagnosis, you know, you don't want to do everything for them. So it's really important to give them that sense of independence, but then figure out where the things that you can help out with, what are they struggling with where you can kind of fill in that gap or give them that support. But then also, you know, having a little bit of that independence and that escape for yourself. And we're going to talk a little bit about sanctuary spaces in our homes in our well home design news but i just felt that those were things that were really important to share with you now turning to our pop culture which we typically do in in these podcast episodes you know obviously there have been some really great movies we're going to talk to dr zitter who actually did a documentary on a caregiving love story. But if you're looking for more of the dramatic kind of love stories that are out there, I mean, you know, what's better than love story, which was back in the 1970s with Ryan O'Neill and Allie McGraw, very poignant, lovely story, but it's obviously got a sad ending, but it really talks about a young couple facing um, a traumatic diagnosis. So that's one that I might recommend if you haven't seen that. There's also uh, another story that's on cancer caregiving. It's actually about a breast cancer a woman who is diagnosed with breast cancer, and Liam Neeson plays the husband and, and talks about the struggles of being, you know, the husband to someone who is fighting breast cancer. And that movie is actually called Ordinary Love. So you may want to check that out. Now, if you're thinking about Alzheimer's, again, there are some great movies out there. I will, I will tell you, there's a little difference to some of these movies. So there's a movie called Away from Her. With Julie Christie, and she was actually nominated for Best Actress to Oscar a few years ago when she started in this movie. And there's another movie that won the Oscar for Best Picture of a Foreign Film, and that was called Amour, which is Love in French. Both of those movies are really tough to watch. If you truly want to understand what caregiving for someone with Alzheimer's is about, then you may wanna check them out, But but they aren't what I would call entertainment. Now, if you want something a little bit more uplifting that still tells you about the realities of Alzheimer's caregiving, but gives you a little sense of hope and that love story. I've referenced these before, but there's a movie called What They Had with Blythe Danner. It's really terrific. And that has a great spousal caregiving story in it. And then there's also The Notebook, which again is probably one of my top 10 favorite movies of all time. And that's about an Alzheimer's caregiving situation between spouses. And it's a really lovely, wonderful, uplifting kind of love story. And then, you know, turning to other types of drama. There's also the theory of everything, which is the story of Stephen Hawking, who was the uh, renowned physicist who had ALS. There's also A Beautiful Mind, which uh, won the best Oscar picture, I think, for that year. And that is a great movie that was directed by Ron Howard. But it's about, you know, mental health and, and mental illness. It's about the true story of John Nash, who was actually a Nobel laureate in economics, but he had schizophrenia. And it it talks a lot about the struggle that his wife Alicia had in, you know, um, being his partner and being his spouse through their life. So, you know, you can check those out. I think, again, they all its pop culture gives us insights as to what's going on in spousal caregiving. So, we're going to have all of those links on our episode guide page. And then you can also check out some of the articles and interviews I've done with celebrities. You know, there's some great love stories out there. And some, I just want to reference. I won't go into their actual story. You can read the articles, but I interviewed Kim Campbell, who was the wife of Glenn Campbell, country music singer, who again had Alzheimer's. And she talks about the challenges of having Glenn at home after his diagnosis. And then they did a final tour, but then eventually because of the progression of the disease, they did have to move him into memory care. That's a wonderful story. And she was a delight to talk to. And then there's, also Sylvia Mackey who I love and it's kind of super bowl time frame you know by the time you listen to this the super bowl will have probably wrapped up and we'll know who the winner is but Sylvia Mackey was the wife of John Mackey who played football in the NFL for the Baltimore Colts for most of his career his number was 88 and he had frontotemporal dementia. And Sylvia is just a wonderful delight. And I included her story in my book. And I have a, a link to the article in the interview I did with her. And then also Dan Gatsby, Gatsby, who was the husband of B. Smith. We lost B. a few years ago. She had early onset Alzheimer's. We know that African-Americans are actually twice as likely as Caucasians to develop Alzheimer's. And so it's a very important kind of education, I think, within communities of color, but for all of us. And Dan has a really lovely love story and a little controversial. You know, some people were really upset with him because he wanted companionship when when B was progressing into the much later stages of the disease. And he formed a relationship with a woman who was a neighbor and she would, you know, come in and visit with B and B really kind of, didn't fully maybe understand everything, of course, that was going on, but knew that this person was a friend to her husband and all of that. And it gave him a chance to get out and go to dinner and kind of have a conversation that he wasn't able to do with B. Now, a lot of people think that's wrong. They think, well, you know, again, your marriage vows say, tell death, do us part, but it is a very, very lonely place. For caregivers, particularly of those with dementia, who while their loved one may still be alive, they aren't able to have the kind of relationship that they had. And I had a, a very dear friend who went through this. Her husband actually, he had a heart attack and he was pronounced cardiac death. But the EMT, she called nine one one. They were able to resuscitate him. Anyway, he wound up having a really Tough time. He wasn't able to take care of himself. He wasn't able to have a conversation. And so she, again, she went into a very lonely place because her husband was alive, but she wasn't able to have the relationship with him. So I just ask for people to be compassionate and to try to be empathetic about the loneliness of these caregivers. So if you're a friend, reach out because people do need to still have that social stimulation and interaction, even if the loved one they're caring for you know, isn't able to really have that with them. So with that, we're going to turn to our interview with Dr. Jessica Zitter on her documentary film called Caregiver, A Love Story. I am so thrilled to introduce our next guest, Dr. Jessica Zitter, who is really kind of the perfect conversation for today, because of course, as you know, we're launching this episode on Valentine's Day, February 14th. And then just four days later, we have National Caregiver Day. And Dr. Zitter, I'm going to give you a little bit of her background, but what we're really going to focus on in our discussion today is her latest documentary film, which is called Caregiver, A Love Story. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Zitter before we bring her on here. She is a palliative care medicine and critical care ICU physician in a public hospital in Oakland, California. And I've, you know, took some quotes, Dr. Zitter, that you've said, I want to change the culture of medicine and I want to bring humanism into medicine. And and we are all for that. Now, Dr. Zitter also has a book called Extreme Measures, Finding a Better Path to the End of Life. And there's a great index, by the way, in that book for family caregivers and patients to ask their doctors, which is really a great guide. And then that book became the basis for her Netflix Emmy and Academy Award nominated film Extremis, which is about hospice care. So Dr. Zitter, we're just so thrilled to have you today. Welcome to Caregiving Club on Air. Oh, thank you so much for having me. And
1: just a quick correction, which is Extremis is actually about the intensive care unit. Oh, I'm so sorry.
0: Okay. So it's about intensive care. And then we are talking today about the hospice care and end of life. And, you know, before we get started, I always ask all of our guests, where are we talking to you from today? Because we talk to people kind of all over the
1: globe, really. So where are you today? I am in Oakland, California, right north of
0: you. Wonderful. Yeah. Beautiful Northern California. Love that area. So, well, thanks for joining us. And the documentary is about a husband who is caring for his wife, end of life cancer. She has terminal cancer. And explain first, before we get into the documentary, I don't think a lot of our listeners and a lot of people understand the difference between palliative care and hospice care. So give us your your definitions of those and their explanation of what those
1: are. Absolutely. And it's such an important distinction because there is a certain taboo that unfortunately has come into our culture when you talk about things like hospice care. And it's unfortunate because, in fact, when I start to describe what hospice care is, I think you'll understand that it's it's really just wrapping an extra level of care, a layer of care around people. But the thing about hospice and palliative care is that hospice is a subset of palliative care. Palliative care as a concept is the approach to maximizing quality of life in every patient. Person's not necessarily dying, a person just has a serious symptom burden, whether it be pain, anxiety, depression, a whole variety of things that come with serious illness. The subset of patients who actually are dying who will benefit from palliative care are people who qualify for hospice. So hospice, again, is the subset of all the people who would benefit from palliative care approaches who actually are dying. So because you know bringing in palliative care to a case does not mean that you're dying, it does not mean anything, it just means you need extra attention to managing symptoms and maximizing your quality of life.
0: You know, what's interesting about this is that, you know, a lot of people, first of all, think hospice care is really just the last couple of weeks, maybe, of life. And we know that Medicare covers up to, I think, at least six months, but that can also be renewed so you can be on that longer. The palliative care, though, I've heard a lot of family caregivers say when they hear that word, it's almost like when you heard the word cancer 30 years ago you immediately panic and think that it's it's over and that you're not that, that hope is gone so tell us a little bit about the the culture of palliative care and why that's that's not the right way to think about it these are great questions thank you so much for for asking them
1: excuse my cough by the way getting over a uh, covid just yes, and it. we're so grateful
0: that you're getting over <laughs> <laughs> and, and joining us today, even. <laughs> Vaccinations. Right.
1: It's really, really important to understand that adding in palliative care to the care of any serious illness is really, truly adding in value and support. It is not taking anything away. When in 2012, the American Society for Clinical Oncology, ASCO, recommended that any patient who is diagnosed with any kind of serious cancer, even if they're expected to live for decades, which many do, should have a concurrent palliative care intervention. They should be followed by the palliative care team. Unfortunately, this happens far too rarely. And what what we see in the palliative care world is those people who do get assigned to us, again, whether they have cancer or whether they have congestive heart failure or whether they have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or any other kind of serious illness, those patients actually do better. They have more attention to their, their condition. They have more relief of their symptoms. And frankly, in many, many studies, they live longer. So there's this concept that palliative care is a death sentence for patients with serious illness. It's exactly the opposite. And it's really unfortunate that that sort of that image has been portrayed in onto palliative care because people are then becoming deprived of this intervention that could be of such benefit to them.
0: Well, and I've always said I wish that palliative care and hospice care were the model for medical care overall for, <laughs> throughout your, your care needs, your medical care needs, because there is a holistic team. And what's really lovely is that sometimes when you're the family caregiver, you almost feel like you're, there's a wall between what the physician may share with you and also being involved. And the hospice and palliative care environment is so embracing of family and the spiritual side of, you know, things like end of life. So I, I really, really love that. Let's dig into the film because I I really, this is such a wonderful, powerful, poignant film. And thank you so much for making it. You were both the director and the producer on it and, and also star in it, um, even though it's a documentary, but this was about uh, your patient Bambi and her husband, Rick. And tell us just quickly, give us a little synopsis of what the film is about. Well, the thing you need to know is actually she wasn't
1: my patient. Okay. Bambi was my friend. Bambi actually went to my synagogue, and so I knew her for for several, probably actually, I think it was probably about a year that I had known her. She had come and moved to, us, to our community from New Jersey, and I knew she had a serious illness. I knew she had a metastatic cancer. She talked to me, so she was a physician assistant, so she would sort of talk to me professional to professional, medical professional to medical professional. And I knew about her diagnosis, but she was doing everything. She was continuing every possible treatment, which I understand and, 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 and respect. And But she had come to a point by the time she contacted me for help, where she she said, I, I, I'm i so sick. I, I don't even, I, I, I can't do this anymore. I came over to her house and she was so, so sick. She They had been taking her in and out to radiation therapy and all sorts of treatments and interventions. And she was so sick that she really couldn't carry on. And it, I sat with her for about an hour that afternoon talking about the options. You know, do we continue to do the things that this oncologist is continuing to prescribe, even though she's continuing to deteriorate? Or do we say it is time to really focus on quality of life and stop doing the interventions? And at that moment, she she just said, I can't, I, I must focus on reducing my symptoms. I can't, I can't continue on like this anymore. So we, Mm -hmm. we actually called in hospice at that point. And by the way, calling in hospice, if you qualify for hospice and as you are deemed by a physician to be within six months of death, it doesn't mean that everybody is truly within six. No, you know, we don't have a crystal ball. So some people actually start on hospice and they start to feel better and they actually graduate from hospice and they 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 are you know discharged from hospice and can go back to try further treatments and interventions but at that moment in time bambi did not want to try any further interventions she wanted to maximize her 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 comfort and her quality of life hospice came in and she started to feel incredibly better like it was such a night and day experience and i thought You know, I had already written a book and done another movie and Bambi said, come and show people how much better I feel after 24 hours, after 48 hours, let's show people how great hospice is. And so this film was not supposed to be about (laughs) caregiver burden. I didn't even know about caregiver burden when I started out to make this film. I was making this film to show how wonderful it can be to choose a different path than just continued treatment, 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 but to choose a path which focuses more on quality of life. And I ended up seeing after Bambi had died, and I was looking at all of the footage that I'd gathered, that the film really wasn't about that. It was really about what happened to her husband and his profound burden and distress that grew over the nine weeks that Bambi was at home with hospice.
0: Well, and that's that's the powerful part that I got from the film, is that your focus on really what became almost Rick's story and his journey as a family caregiver. And it really, that's the love story part of this. And so, you know, tell us a little bit. I mean, obviously this is one of those really unique stories because when you get married, you say in sickness and in health. And very often when we, come to end of life maybe you've been married for 40 years or you know whatever but they had just recently kind of gotten together and in fact she was sick and i remember in, i think in the film she said this is your get out of jail free card you can go because you know i i may not make it and he said no i'm in it you know i'm in it to win it and to win you so tell us a little bit about that love story that you witnessed and And what you saw, and then you went back and and tell us what happened after she passed and you interviewed Rick again, two years later. Well, you know, she said to him, you have to get out of jail free card before they got married. Mm -hmm.
1: And she said, then he, you know, he said no, and he flew out. And I think that that's indicative, you know, Rick had no idea. First of all, he, he didn't really realize that she was going to die that quickly. Mm -hmm. And number two, he had no idea what that was going to mean for him. And that is, I think, a symbol of what all of us in America who are potentially going to be caregivers, you know, one out of five Americans right now is a caregiver, one out of five people that's and growing, by the way, because the demographics are shifting so much that there are fewer and fewer people available to be caregivers for more and more people who will need it.
0: Right. And I love it on your website because you use that famous quote by former first lady Rosalind Carter, who wrote in her book, you know, there's only four kinds of people in the world, right? Those who have been caregivers, those that are caregiving, those that will be caregiving or somebody who's going to be caregiving for us. So you're kind of not going to escape the caregiving role
1: at some point, right? Right. I just, I think that this is a I mean, I hate to use this imagery, but it's like a public health, looming public health crisis. That is just a, it's like a tsunami. You know, this, they call it the silver tsunami, but this is really happening. I, as I learned more about this issue once I realized, and by the way, that's something else we should talk about, is how could a palliative care doctor not have known about family caregiver burden? That's a thing for us to pull up in the conversation in a second. But the fact is, we are all Rick. We are all Rick's. We are all potential Rick's and at by some point in our lives, we will probably be touched by by either being a caregiver or needing a caregiver. And we need to be prepared for this because it is not going away and it is causing profound suffering and burden. And we do not have a national strategy to support these caregivers who will be all of us. So I think, care, you know, when Rick's sort of signed up for this, he did not have any kind of a visual about what caregiver burden was, or that it was actually going to impact his life, and I think we, that again is is a symbol for what all of us. We all need to watch this film, and we all need to see ourselves in Rick's role so that we can prepare and that we can start to understand the urgency of this tsunami that is upon us and start to figure out how to how to solve it before it it eats us all
0: well and and you make such a a, a really important point, And that is one, yeah, we don't prepare to become caregivers. Then we're thrust into this role. And now, you know, you've got a lot of emotions. Obviously your focus is on providing that care. So all of these other outside things, so maybe looking at the financial picture or being able to pull together a, a support team for you, you're trying to do that in the midst of all of this emotional turmoil. So if we can get people a little bit ahead of that, and planning a little bit better ahead. Now, you touched upon something, though, that I do feel is really important. I, I mentioned to you before we got on the podcast that I had worked in a medical center, academic medical center here in Southern California. And one of the things that I was really struck by is that in the medical school, the medical students were required to do a pediatrics rotation, but they weren't required to do a geriatrics rotation. And as a gerontologist, I was like, wait a minute, we're going to have far more parents and older people and older spouses were caring for than even children in the next few years. So give me your thoughts on that as, you know, a medical professional, a doctor. Well, I mean, it ties right
1: into that point that I wanted us to bookmark of, oh my goodness, palliative care doctor, advocate for dying better in America. And I didn't know about this until I stumbled upon it by mistake in making a film. That's serious problem. And you're absolutely right. We do not learn about family caregiver burden. The fact is, for taking care of children, there are built in, for the most part, parents who are there to do that job. We generally have some kind of an understanding about parenting. People step in to support the the new parents. You know, usually there's family around, usually there's community and support. Okay, that's all accepted. and, And we've kind of been doing that for decades and decades, generations and millennia, right? That's what human beings do. What's changed, uh, as you say, this sort of need for geriatric support and support of people with serious illness at home, that is a rising issue. There is no built in structure for that. There is no built in social structure for taking care of our aged when we don't have a house full of family like we used to, right? You know, 100, 200, 300, 400 years ago. We do not have that anymore. In this day and age, people have small families. The families, split up people move all over the country we never had that before and people are living longer because of modern medicine and so there's this aging of the population we've got all these baby boomers and very few people to care for them so we have there's no existing structure we have no internal awareness of this issue it used to be something that was just taken care of by the family and that family structure is gone and so we now have this again Tsunami that we are completely unprepared to manage, mm-hmm. and it is really something that that we need to start rethinking. And the fact is, I send patients as a palliative care doctor. I send patients home on hospice all the time, and I had no idea. I thought we get them into hospice, everyone's happy. This is this we've gotten the ball through the goal. We've kind of given people a realistic alignment of their of of what's r- realistic for 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 their you know, how we can get them the best life possible. It's maximizing their, their, their comfort. It's maximizing their quality of life. We don't have any, you know, we, at this point for this particular person, we have no more life prolonging interventions that are working. This feels like success, send them home. And I thought we had, we had sort of solved the problem. And it was only when I followed Rick and Bambi home, I was home because I was their friend, and I you know, saw what actually happened in retrospect, because I didn't even realize it until a year after Bambi had died and I was starting to assemble the footage, that I said, oh my goodness, this is actually the real story here. And I started to see how prevalent it is and how impactful and seriously devastating it is to all of those caregivers out there. And I started to realize that I had just missed this entire public health crisis.
0: Well, and and given what we've all been going through with COVID, I mean, it became even more exacerbated, right? Because we've got more family caregivers caring for loved ones at home. In fact, you know, when I'm at conferences and stuff, everything is about home care, home care, hospital at home. So everything is being focused on the home, which means the family caregiver burden is only going to increase. Tell us about what you observed with Rick because you went back and you you interviewed him again when you were putting together that footage after Bambi had gone and you were still seeing some of the fallout of his caregiving. Definitely. Well, first of all, I know
1: I see Rick a lot, but, you know, again, we're 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 part of the same community, so I do see see Rick pretty frequently. But I, you know, the thing the, the thing I will say is that it, you know, and Rick says it in the film, he it took him he was so traumatized by this experience and he only did it by the way for nine weeks you know the average family caregiver does this for four and a half years right so imagine just put that in contact there were so many other reasons why he had it easier than everybody else and yet you still are you're so heavy when you watch his experience but he had it easier than so many family caregivers but he was traumatized by this experience he was financially pushed to the brink although again he had it luckier than many he was emotionally exhausted, pushed to the brink, lonely, isolated, completely exhausted, guilty, felt, you know, he said, I, I didn't sign up for this. Talk about how guilty, you know, when our image of what a good husband is is to just sit by the bed and be there, you know, remember that movie in the 19, 1970 love story? That's the image of what the caregiver should be. But don't forget, that guy was in a hospital with all these nurses around. Right. was exhausted. So he was filled with guilt and shame and... And exhaustion and he was physically he got sick because of this he physically fell apart so Rick had a lot of you know incredible trauma I mean and again it's not that he didn't love his wife and it's not that he didn't get a lot of positive things out of being a caregiver it was a very meaningful role for him but he was still traumatized by it and so it took him a year and a half he said before he could even really think about going back to work, he was just exhausted and traumatized. and I think that most of our family caregivers have that experience, and we need to honor it and support it
0: well, and 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 you talk a little bit about the fact that, you know our caregivers, their their whole focus is really honestly on caring for this person. Unfortunately, I try to talk about we've got to have balance. you know you don't want to give up your me time and your own needs, but very often, that is what happens. And yet, then, when the person is gone, there's this huge void. And it's almost like you're adrift in an ocean. You know you don't even know what to do with your life because everything was so much about this other person. You have to figure out ways to kind of build build that life back. You know, it, going through this experience with Rick and with Bambi and doing the film, what are the things that you're now seeing that we should be doing to support our family caregivers?
1: Well, I think it's really, and you and I were just talking about this before we started the interview. I think the thing that's so fascinating is that there are so many different stakeholders that impact the lives of family caregivers, from the employers to the colleagues at work, to, you remember, 60% of family caregivers work, most of them full-time, to Mm -hmm. the healthcare providers and all the health system that's taking care of the patient But has this invisible caregiver there in in their presence to the, you know, communities, synagogues, churches and neighborhoods to all the social service. I mean, there's so many there's so many groups that impact the law that potentially could impact and could make better or worse the experience of the family caregiver. And so I really think that let's not forget the politicians, right? right? The politicians who are making the laws about how much money and support we're going to give to family caregivers. These are all groups that can have different roles to play in improving the lives of family caregivers which as we said before is all of us. So we we really need I think and one of you know the things I hope to do with this film because it is so short and impactful is to get this film in front of all of those different types of groups so that those groups understand their role and the roles that they can play to really do a little bit to make the lives of family caregivers Better. We have been creating programs with, with the film, it's short, it's 24 minutes, so we can wrap a workshop into an hour for medical students to, to learn about family caregiver burden. We can go, we could theoretically create a one-hour program for, you know, EAP programs and, and, and human resources programs so that the HR specialists at different companies can understand the issues that family caregivers face. We can create lots and lots of programming. We're actually working on uh, creating programming for faith leaders to start to understand what's going on in their congregations and why they need to spend more time thinking about identifying, creating committees to support the family caregivers in churches, synagogues, et cetera. There's so many things we can do, and I really believe, again, that this film, being such a short and impactful film, could be a great tool for that. And uh, hopefully you'll help me, Sherry.
0: Definitely, and I want to. I want to just say to any of our listeners who you may be in these roles where you can make decisions about bringing in this film. As you said, it's twenty four minutes, so it's relatively short, but it's a great conversation starter. And then to have more of the educational piece, the conversations, the workshops, or whatever is terrific. So yes, hopefully we will partner together to bring bring that about. So you know, as we're kind of wrapping up here, well, first of all, what what are the Response has been from the audiences who have seen the film so far. What What are the things that you're hearing back?
1: Oh my goodness! Well, again, we've shown this film to a large varieties. You saw it at the at the Geological Society of America you keynote. We we've done it in front of. Large hospice audiences. We've done it. We've we've shown it to many many groups of family caregivers. We've shown it to physicians, medical students, and medical residents. Um, the overwhelming responses we've had are very very positive. There's been a lot of emotion around it. You can imagine for different groups. Not only the family caregivers themselves, who for whom it may bring up things that are hard to see, but also be very validating. But even for people like medical students and medical residents, I've seen tears because these are people who who say you know. Oh, oh my gosh, I was just taking care of someone last week and I realized I was so focused on the patient. I didn't even think about this person next to them who who was probably suffering. I needed even a little bit of attention from me. And I I feel, so I think that it can be a very inspiring film for a lot of different groups, uh, just in terms of frankly, number one, raising awareness about the issue as it did for me. And I think that's the first step, but I think we can also provide these different groups with very sort of helpful tips
0: and tricks to help this group of people, even small things can make a big difference. Right. Well, and again, you know, you and I talked, I focus so much on caregiver wellness. And I think one of the things we keep hearing is, well, you've got to have self-care, you've got to have balance and we want to prevent, you know, things like chronic illness. But when we know that caregivers can become lonely and we know they have higher rates of depression and certainly more stress in their life, all of those things are going to contribute to their own health, being impacted. So we've got to reverse that cycle, right? And we've got to help caregivers see that there is help out there, but then how do we deliver that to them? First of all, tell us again, where can our listeners see the film or do they need to you know, con- connect with a local organization that may be showing it? And also where can they find out more information about you and your book?
1: Oh well, thank you for asking. The, the first place to go is to jessicazitter.com because that has a lot of information about me and where we're speaking and the projects that we're doing. We also have a website called caregiveralovestory.com which is really specific to the film. But I think that, you know, you can go to either of those websites to see upcoming events some of which have to do with, with caregiver. The Caregiver Love Story uh, website is is specific to caregiver. We have Good Docs, is our educational distributor. So um, the film is, is available to libraries and educational organizations through Good Docs. And it, it's uh, very easy to stream through their gooddocs.net. I'll get you the specific website.
0: Okay. We'll have that on our episode guide page for everybody who's listening.
1: And of course, you can always reach out to us on the JessicaZitter.com website uh, to learn more about how to bring this to your event or your institution. We'd be more than happy to help you figure out all the different ways that we have of doing that. And eventually we're hoping to get this on a general public streaming service, but that is not where we are quite yet.
0: You'll get there. I know you will. So what's the, is there anything we haven't covered or do you have a last message for our listeners, many of whom are caregivers right now? What is the message you want to send to them?
1: I think the message I want to send to them is we are starting to understand this issue. We are understanding that this is an issue out there. And I think we're, with we're hopefully with the support of this film, we're going to get this out in a sort of more powerful and direct way so that more and more people can start to be aware of this issue. We want to support you. We need you to know that you're doing important, important work that we all want to support and that we need to develop a national strategy to support you. But let's all rally around you for now, raise awareness and start to make some changes and improvements uh, with all of these institutions that we talked about before. We've got your back. We care about you and thank you for the important work that you're doing.
0: Well, thank you, Dr. Zitter for bringing all of this to light and giving us this wonderful film, which is just such a, it's such a wonderful jewel for family caregivers out there. And again, we're sending our love today on on Valentine's Day as we launch, but also doing a shout out to our heroes and caregivers on National Caregiver Day, February 18th. Dr. Zitter, it's just been an honor talking to you. Thank you so much. So great to talk to you. Thank you so much for having me. So for our well Home design news, I want to turn to, again, our 2022 trends. And one of the things that we're seeing, particularly in the colors that are really trending this year. Um, We certainly know greens are high on the list. And most of the major paint companies came out with their colors of the year that were some kind of a shade or hue of green. But also what we're seeing trending are rosy pink colors. Now, for a lot of you, you might be thinking, well, you know, those are really feminine and kind of a little girly, but we're seeing all shades of pink, but particularly this kind of deeper rosy pink. And part of this is because grand millennial design or what some people call cottage cozy or grand Chic. It's been made famous by Aaron Napier on Hometown, but a lot of the colors that are often in those kind of grand millennial design aesthetic are the rosy pinks and greens, which is you know kind of interesting. But one of the things we can say about the color psychology of pink is this, and that is that you know red is a is a color of vibrancy and alertness, and you know it it signifies life and it signifies love. The pink color is particularly the rosy pink, I think is a little, it's a little softer. You know, some people are a little thrown and and turned off by red and it can actually cause a lot of agitation and anxiety. And so, you know, instead of going all the way into that red hue, think about something that might be a little bit more of a rosy pink that kind of has that softer nurturing kind of, you know, still gives you a little bit of refresh, you know, almost like spring flowers, but you can do one wall. We're seeing a lot of it in kitchen cabinets, even appliances, you know, particularly in things like the bathroom or in the bedroom. And so, you know, these really are the rosy pink we're seeing also in couches and chairs and throw pillows and blankets and all of that. So for caregivers who are kind of looking for a little bit of an update, you know, you may want to think about this color and maybe it's something as simple as just one small decor item. Or like I said, maybe it's a, a throw or a pillow that just kind of livens up the room, gives you that sense of kind of, you know, that coziness, that uh, hygge. That we talk about so often. So the rosy pink color is definitely on the list. It's one of those trending colors for 2022. Now the other thing that's trending, and by the way, I write about all of this in an article that is on our Snug Home section of the Caregiving Club website. So we're going to have a link to that article and others that I've written that relate to all of this on our episode guide page but you can also find other articles that i've done on 2022 design trends that are really applicable for well home design for caregivers and aging in place for you know older adults but the other thing we're seeing are sanctuary spaces now you know this is kind of an evolution if you will of the she sheds and the man caves that were really popular you know a few years ago but those were actual almost separate areas that were being created, you know, in the backyard area, or maybe again, it was a shed that was being converted or something like that. What we're talking about when we talk about sanctuary spaces are places actually within your home where you can find that little moment of escape. And I think again, when we're speaking on this episode of the podcast, so much about spousal and partner caregiving, you know, as much as you love your loved one and you're there for them, which is 24 seven, you still need to have a little place to yourself, a little place to get away. So what we're finding is certainly the spa-like bathrooms that started trending during the pandemic, those are still definitely on the rise. Everybody is looking at turning their bathroom into that true spa experience. Whether you're gonna do a nice soak in the tub or whether you're gonna get a beautiful, almost like a rainfall, therapeutic shower, everybody is turning to those. And you know, what's really interesting is, Some things that we see happening in the bathroom with younger homeowners, like uh, people who are in the millennial age group, they're starting to embrace what we call universal design. So for instance, a no-step shower, which is something we talk about for older adults, that's become really, really popular for people of all ages also walk in tubs now what's fascinating to me about this trend is that you know walk in tubs kind of had that ooh you know i i don't want to get one of those it's going to scream that i'm older but there's really been some really wonderful designs and also some updates if you will in the technology where the tubs fill a lot faster and drain a lot faster but we're finding that young mothers love these walk-in tubs, because they're easier to actually bathe your kids in. They might even be a little bit safer than a regular tub. So, you know, think about that. But a lot of um, younger people are opting for that kind of spa experience because a lot of these walk-in tubs have the hydrotherapy, they have what we call chromotherapy with different lighting and and all these things that you can do and just kind of sit back and have that spa experience. So, we're seeing a lot of that. But also what we're seeing is within the home Um, A lot of interior designers are being asked to find little nooks, you know, like those nooks and crannies that you would maybe see in, in older homes. But we're still into our open spaces and open floor plans. That's still, of course, very big. But what we're looking for now is a small little space, a little corner, where maybe we can have a chair, we can curl up with a good book, or maybe it's, you know, near a wall fireplace, where you can get a little warmth, or maybe it's right near a window, you can open the window and feel the breeze, you know, on your face and in the beautiful spring and summer months, anywhere that you can find a little bit of that escape, maybe even do a little meditation, you know, a lot of people either went whole hog on the exercise room or just a little space for kind of meditating and kind of having some quiet time. This is really something that we're seeing that's on trend. So one of the things I want to mention that I think is really important when you're thinking about your well home design and bringing things like biophilic design, which I'm really big on, which is about bringing nature into the home and some of these other things that, you know, help with universal design and, and make it ageless really and safe for any age, particularly in things like the bathroom where we see a lot of falls. But I think it's really important that it be authentic to you. And, you know, we talk about styles and I I write about the styles and the, the style aesthetics that are trending. You know, we're going from farmhouse to lake house. We're seeing Japandi, which is a mashup of Scandinavian and Japanese kind of more of that minimalist design, but also maximalism is kind of Being infused into a little bit of that as well. So we're kind of going backwards and going back into things like vibrant colors and a little bit more decor. So it's not quite as streamlined and minimalism as we've seen in the past. So those are some of the trends that we're seeing, but make it authentic to you because at the end of the day, this has to be a place that you love that supports you in what you want to be healthy. So making sure that you're decluttering that's a really important one. We talked about that on the last episode with um, Matt Paxton, but just giving yourself the environment that supports you and whether it's having something that was passed down in your family that you look at and it gives you that grounding and that sense of self, whether it's, you know, bring something new, like some rosy new pillow or blanket or couch or chair or something into the room that gives you a smile on your face. Those are the kinds of things that are important. And it's okay to kind of mash up some of these different styles. You know, I'll tell you that my my particular style, my house is a blend of what we would call probably Hollywood Regency, which is a little bit more of that luxe. You know, that's kind of more in my dining room and, and um, in my living room. But then I would say, you know, my bedroom is much more of kind of that traditional kind of English, English cottage kind of look. So it's okay to blend these things together. You don't have to have your house look like a styled out home. Some people like to have a little bit different feel when they walk into different rooms, but it's all about you. What makes you happy? What makes you joyful? What kind of gives you that sense of comfort? Because that's so important, particularly when we're caregiving, we need to have those escapes where we can sit in the chair or sit next to something that we can stare at for a while that, that makes us happy again. That's my Well Home Design news for you today. And now we're going to go to our Me Time Monday wellness hack on Pink Clouds rose-colored glasses, and silver linings. Welcome to our Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. This episode's Wellness Hack, we look at optimism and the wellness science behind having a positive outlook, even in challenging times. This exercise will help curb your anxiety and improve your mental and physical health. Since 2022 is our year of living colorfully here at Caregiving Club, we chose pink as our theme for this episode since we are posting this podcast on Valentine's Day. Color psychology states pink is a calming color. In fact, in several scientific studies, one shade known as drunk tank pink, which is also called Baker Miller Pink, is similar to the shade on the screen right now, which is a deep rosy pink. It has been used in prisons, jails, and other holding cells in the military to calm inmates and those who are drunk and disorderly. Pink is also associated with love, kindness, and nurturing, all words that we associate with family caregiving. It is also a color of springtime flowers and a sense of refresh. Our wellness hack that falls into the well-home design category may be to consider painting a bedroom or other sanctuary room in pink or adding a pink pillow or blanket to create that sense of nurturing and calm. This colorful reminder taps into caregivers' emotional health to hopefully spark more self-care reminders. So stay calm and think pink. When it comes to pink, pink clouds that often occur at dawn or dusk are considered the most spiritually uplifting. In fact, ancient mariners who set sail at sunset felt that the orangey reds and pinks of the clouds were good luck and they had a saying, a red sky at night is a sailor's delight. For those in recovery from alcohol or drug addiction, There is a term called pink cloud syndrome, and it is associated with the emotional high gain after making an effort to live clean. It is a time of euphoria that is often followed by a devastating crash back into reality and life's daily challenges. This can sometimes cause a slip back into bad habits. When it comes to caregiving, we look at pink clouds a little differently. Caregiving can be a journey of challenges, many of which you did not choose but feel forced to address. These challenges combined with the emotional journey of watching a loved one who is ill or struggling with a chronic illness can lead to constant ups and downs and eventually to burnout, almost like being lost at sea. Before this happens, we recommend having your heads in the clouds for a five-minute Me Time Monday wellness hack that taps into your positive emotions of hope and joy. So go outside for the best free show on earth at either sunrise or sunset, or just simply sit back and visualize your pink clouds and think of the following. First, the slow rolling of the clouds is like sunlight bursting through rain and darkness, offering soft moments of happiness. The clouds of happiness come and go but the promise is that they do happen and they do come back. Do you see faces or shapes in the clouds? Are some fluffy white like marshmallows and others pink like cotton candy? Let the clouds make you feel lighter and like a child again, carefree and just cloud gazing. Secondly, the slow movement of the clouds teaches us to be patient, to be present, to live in the glory of the moment and of nature's gifts. Let the clouds make you feel that sense of wonder and that sometimes our problems or sadness can be blown away by just letting the clouds roll by. Are happier people, those who see life with rose-colored glasses, healthier? Well, research shows happiness as a trait promotes people to look for more positive stimuli in their environments and therefore their happiness grows around them. A study in the Journal of Neuroscience stated, good and bad moods literally change the way our visual cortex operates in the brain and how we see. Specifically, the study shows that when in a positive mood, the visual cortex takes in more information while negative moods result in tunnel vision. Good moods enhance the literal size of the window through which we see the world. And it allows us to gain a greater perspective And have better creative problem solving to life's challenges so basically positive thinking people teach themselves to tune out toxic stimuli and reduce their stress levels by practicing this selective attention to positivity we become more resilient and confident which in turn helps us to be more kind and more caring While caregiving can be challenging and exhausting, it can also bring unexpected silver linings. It can give you the gift of knowing your loved one in a more meaningful way and maybe learning more about yourself. It can make you feel good to give to someone. Those who volunteer or give back, even in small ways, are often happier and healthier. And it can actually help you in your job search. Many caregivers are telling potential employers they have learned patience, empathy, logistical coordination skills, problem solving, and communication skills from their caregiving experience. These skills are what employers look for in an ideal employee. So whether you spend a few minutes watching clouds roll by, or you see the world with rose colored glasses, or you look for the silver linings in caregiving, we hope you enjoyed this Me Time Monday Wellness Hack. Each episode of our Caregiving Club on-air podcast features a new Me Time Monday wellness hack, and you can learn more about the Me Time Monday program and workshop at caregivingclub.com and check out my wellness articles for my upcoming book, Me Time Monday, the weekly wellness edit for a wonderful life. Take care and stay well. Hope you enjoyed our Valentine's Day and National Caregiver Day episode. Please listen to us on Spotify, Apple and Google podcasts and other listening channels and check out all of the resources and article links on our episode guide page at caregivingclub.com podcast and email us with any questions or comments at podcast at caregivingclub.com. Take care and stay well.